I think we'll see growth of global value chains in RCP. So on one hand, you have growth of the consumption markets out here, the consumer will grow, but there'll be manufacturing growth to support the consumption as well. And given that about half of the world's manufacturing activities is already taking place in mm -hmm. Asia itself, it will also be a manufacturing base to export to other countries and other regions around the world. Welcome to the Going Global podcast, brought to you by Globalization Partners. Hire anyone, anywhere, quickly and easily. Use our AI-driven, automated, fully compliant global employer of record platform, powered by our in-house worldwide HR experts with 97% customer satisfaction ratings. Globalization Partners, succeed faster. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Going Global, the podcast where leaders in high growth companies tell us their own stories of going global and building global remote teams. I'm your host, Diego Mendiburu, and remember that you can find all episodes of this show on Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. On today's show, we're interviewing N. Keith Lee. He's the Executive Director of Network Partnerships and Strategic Marketing at United Overseas Bank, based in Singapore, where he uses his more than 20 years of experience to engage clients in Asia's emerging markets, including India, Indonesia, Philippines, and Myanmar, in the agri-food, logistics, real estate, and infocom sectors. Hello, Ankit, and welcome. Hi, Diego. It's good to be on the podcast with you. It's a great pleasure to learn more about what is happening in Southeast Asia. I think we have to begin with the basics. Please explain to our audience which countries integrate the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, better known as ASEAN, and a bit of its history, you know, where did this started, why it was created, and what were the consequences of this association of countries? Sure, Diego, I think that's a great place to start. Actually, I would start with also the geography. If you follow the equator, and then you bring it across out to Asia, a bit right of India, south of where China is, in the middle of there, you would see the Southeast Asian nations, uh, starting around there with Singapore, Indonesia, Malaysia, and then up north, closer to China will be Vietnam, Thailand, as well as Myanmar. So those largely, of course, I'm missing out uh, Laos, Cambodia, as well as Brunei, but that's roughly where the ASEAN is, uh, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. And within there itself, if you think about the geography-wise, uh, although it's, it looks very compact on the globe or map, actually the geographical width of Indonesia itself is actually equivalent to the main part of the USA. And that's how broad and wide actually Indonesia is, and that's part of Southeast Asia. So enough of geography. <laughs> this is not a geography lesson per se, but we think about the association. How did it come about? Actually, it came about because Thailand, one of the countries in ASEAN, was brokering a reconciliation among Indonesia, Philippines, and Malaysia, which had various disputes in the mid-1960s, around the 1967 period, actually. So the foreign ministers actually spent four days in August of 1967 in relative isolation of a beach resort, coastal town, uh, less than about 100 kilometers southeast of uh, Bangkok itself. And there they negotiated a document in a decidedly informal manner, which would later become, I guess, the document and the reference document for the formation of ASEAN itself. Association started off with the founding fathers of ASEAN, they, namely Indonesia, Malaysia, Philippines, Singapore, and Thailand. Then Brunei joined on 7th of January, 1984. Vietnam joined in 95. Laos and Myanmar then came in in 97. And Cambodia was the last entrant in 1999. So these are these comprise the 10 member states of ASEAN. Let me just close off with saying that it's focused on economic growth and social progress and cultural development. 
promoting regional peace and stability, given its roots in terms of coordinating and helping to settle disputes amongst each other, runs on a very core focus, uh, core principles of non-interference, settlement of differences of disputes by peaceful manner, and therefore really co encouraging collaboration and cooperation between the member states uh, within ASEAN itself. Yeah, that led to a great economic growth. And some of the most obvious examples of that economic growth, we all know it, 80% of the world's top 100 technology firms have a sizable presence in Singapore. Many of them have been there for some time, including Google, IBM, and Microsoft. So the question is, why are so many global tech companies jumping into that area, Southeast Asia, and specifically establishing in Singapore? Actually, you've hit the nail on the head. It's actually growth. It's about the economic growth in ASEAN itself. It is a strong region of growth that has recorded about 5% GDP growth on average over the last five years. And it's projected to double its GDP from about US 3 trillion to US 6.6 .6 trillion by 2030. And even in the whole environment of declines in foreign direct investments, it actually still continued to be able to support and its decline in investments was not as significant as other parts of the world. So really, I think it still garners interesting or at least attractive GDP economic growth for the ASEAN countries. Uh, the next area is really trade. It's a region that's very open to trade and it has formed numerous free trade agreements with various parts of the world. And so therefore, that openness to trade is lends itself well, lends the region well to future, future growth. Uh, last but not least is the population growth. And this correlates to its growth as a consumer market. Its current population is about 650 million. And that's projected to grow up to about 726 million in 2030. So I think growth in all these trade areas, GDP, economic, trade, as well as population, really lands this whole areas in terms of its attractiveness to companies that are looking to, for growth markets. And it's not only the size of the population, but also how digital they are. Because I found this piece of uh, information that I believe is quite relevant. According to a report by Google and Temasek, Southeast Asian internet users are the most engaged in the world. So how is this hyper-connectivity helping create a talent pool in the region? And how can companies take advantage of it? I think certainly it's a mobile-savvy consumer. They are considered digital natives, assessing services, I think until now, unavailable due to infrastructure constraints. And so I think it's with that whole growth potential and the uh, people there that's really attracting the companies there. I do have to clarify that actually in terms of an education background, if you look at where uh, some of these global standards for education compares to countries, it's actually quite a wide range. IMD and INSEAD has various studies on this. You know, on one end, you have Singapore and Malaysia relatively, I think, deep in terms of the education standards. But the, on the other hand, up and coming is still the Philippines, Indonesia, Thailand, Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. But I think what we have then is a very diverse culture. And the diversity of the quality and the range of cost is then a potential strength. So you can do different kinds of activities, tapping on the different costs and quality of the talent across the region itself to do a range of activities like being a regional headquarters or for manufacturing, or even trying to identify and tap on the up and coming digital consumers in ASEAN itself. So really, I think it's hard to qualify how the talent in a very single way. I would just say it's a more cosmopolitan, like you said, very common trend of being mobile and digital savvy or very hungry towards becoming much more digitally enabled. And so therein lies the attractiveness, I think, to some of the companies that are looking to the region. 
And how is this a diverse pool of talent also leading to the creation of business unicorns, you know, big tech startups that are not only taking advantage of that market, but truly being created by this new generation of hyper-connected young people that have radical new ideas. Please tell me good examples of business unicorns in the region and what industries are being transformed the most due to this combination of connectivity, talent, and investment. Perhaps as a backdrop, I would just say that the number of internet users actually in ASEAN doubled over the last five years to reach 400 million. In 2020 alone, not surprisingly, it added 40 million internet users. And of course, COVID-19 was a key driver for that. And we believe that by 2030, approximately about 575 million or roughly about 80% of ASEAN's population will be connected to the internet. So more consumers in the region purchasing their goods and services online. And this is actually a study by WF and Bain & Co. So I think the trends are not different from the rest of the world. I think we have had a whole group of companies emerging the whole social media, transportation and e-commerce. The likes of companies like Grab, Gojek, and Tokopedia, which has recently merged, for example. Uh, There's a company called C that does a whole mix of activities like e-commerce as well as uh, digital entertainment. So, of course, in the COVID period, food delivery apps have also emerged. And then online health, e-learning, and manufacturing are also areas that are becoming much more digitally enabled, of course, propelled by the conditions that was caused by the pandemic itself. I would just make a mention of even some of the more interesting areas. In, in an area whereby healthcare is a bit out of reach, where it's harder, where, where there are many islands, for example, in Indonesia. I mean, e-health, where you can, digital consultation has then come on board much more quickly over the last year. And with companies like HaloDoc, that actually has been growing significantly. In the agriculture space, where many of the small holders, I think, don't have as easy access, now with more mobile internet access, there becomes an emergence of a company called like Tenny Hub that actually aggregates various services, enables and provides access to meteorological or so-called weather services to the farmers itself and gives better guidance for the farmers. So I think those are new emerging areas that will also grow and new companies that will also, I guess, emerge out from Southeast Asia. But that's not to say that the international companies are not coming and therefore finding ways to collaborate. I mean, the likes of Facebook, Google, even Microsoft has very significant, for example, cloud services operations out in Southeast Asia itself and looking very much to grow the market. Indonesia with a population of about 230 million is one of the key markets that the internet giants, for example, are really looking at as well. It is a gigantic market. And if everything what we've said, uh, you specifically have said, wasn't enough, now there's the world's largest free trade agreement, the regional comprehensive economic partnership agreement that was just signed at the end of 2020, right? So what will be the most immediate impact of this agreement? And how do you see it transforming the region in the near future or long term? Thank you, Diego. It's a great way to talk about growth of ASEAN itself. Let me give a bit of background first. Besides ASEAN's 10 countries, it has five additional countries. And the key five countries there will be China, Japan, South Korea, Australia, and New Zealand. So why is it the world's largest trade agreement? Because it comprises then 30% of the world's GDP and 30% of the world's population and about 27% of the world's trade. So the immediate impact of RCEP with this whole grouping of 15 countries It's really, it is the first time that China, Japan, and South Korea actually has a trade agreement amongst themselves. So what opens up is then the previous agreements opens up and extends investments in services industries, as well as manufacturing industries that previously 
has not been agreed upon within these countries, for example. So I think you will see immediate interest in terms of the whole North Asia considerations for investments in each other's countries. And that we believe that Japan and South Korea will have more exports into China, for example, because of the trade agreement that has been signed. I think this opens up opportunities to also, okay, the RCP specifically opens up opportunities to invest in services sectors because the member countries have actually committed to open up more than 100 industries so that, and they are moving more towards a negative list approach. So in the past, they would indicate which industries that you can invest in. But now, again, with the best practices of many of the free trade agreements that we've seen around the world, transitioned itself to saying that these are the industries that are more restrictive so as to allow companies with a clearer sense of what are the industries open for investments. I think on the good side, and especially on manufacturing, RCEP will eliminate tariffs on about 92% of the goods traded. It will streamline customs, documentation, and clearances, and will host strengthen the overall manufacturing and global value chain activities in RCEP countries. So I think we'll see growth of global value chains in RCEP. So on one hand, you have growth of the consumption markets out here, the consumer will grow, but there'll be manufacturing growth to support the consumption as well. And given that about half of the world's manufacturing activities is already taking place in mm -hmm. Asia itself, it will also be a manufacturing base to export to other countries and other regions around the world. So I guess we can connect those two topics. The thing we have discussed at the beginning of the podcast, like Singapore is ideal for international tech companies. But now also what you're saying about the new industrial revolution, probably that this agreement will cause in other parts of the region. So I guess the question is, what are the types of companies that want to start doing business in the region, in which countries should they start doing business? Which countries are ideal for consumer-oriented companies and which companies can find countries with a more manufacturing-related interest, for example? Thanks, Diego. Let me just maybe start off with saying that I think Singapore is relatively better known within the region itself. Ranked ease of doing business is a trusted hub. I sometimes joke that Singapore is called uh, Asia Light. So if you think about uh, in America, you have Miller Light and Bud Light as an <laughs> introduction to beer. Singapore is Asia Light because it's an introduction to Asia. English and common law is well established out in Asia itself. It has fairly good in infrastructure and an innovation hub as well. But it is relatively costly. Mm. And it is only a population of about 5.9 million people. A safe location to kind of maybe base in headquarters and then start to explore Really, the consumer markets, let me start with that first, the consumer markets out in Asia itself and in particular ASEAN. You know, and then if you think about the consumption markets, where would you start? I would look at the consumption as a percentage of GDP. And that's where you will see how Vietnam and Philippines come to the fore. And because they are relatively high consumption markets and growing, I think the other key market to focus on for consumer goods companies would be Indonesia. Although the percentage of consumption as GDP is slightly lower, but it's a population of 270 million. So I guess if you are looking at, if you are a consumer-oriented company, Vietnam, Philippines, and Indonesia, I think will be your three key starting points. If you are more, perhaps more of an infrastructure, a city solutions kind of a company, where sustainability and energy efficiency is going to be you know, some of the solutions that you try to look into those markets, then I would suggest that you look into a document called the ASEAN Smart Cities Network mm. that has been prepared by the organization ASEAN. And it actually lays out which are some of the growing cities around ASEAN itself. And perhaps you want to do a very city-centric, pick a few cities from those areas, see which I think priority areas has been highlighted in that document itself, either waste management or energy production or distribution. I think then you can identify where you should start 
for very city-specific solutions. Last but not least, I will talk about manufacturing. And I guess actually the whole nexus of Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, and then increasingly Vietnam, all these are locations whereby manufacturing activities have a good tradition and strengths. Although I would say that the supplier network, let's say in a place like China, will be more sophisticated and larger in scale. But because of, I think, uh, wanting to build supply chain resilience due to COVID and the pandemic and uh, trade tensions around the world, actually ASEAN has become to the fore. And this is where uh, I think we can work with companies in order to identify what are the potential suppliers that can support you as alternatives to your existing pool. Where should you have perhaps a regional distribution center uh, for manufacturing companies so as to make sure that if the pandemic causes certain ports or certain hubs to close, how do you divert flows uh, maybe in and through ASEAN to the rest of Asia? It's a supply chain resiliency uh, consideration. You already explained this. Singapore is famous for being, you know, that place where it is easy to start a business and it's very favorable environment for businesses. But what about the other countries in the region? And I guess the big question is how easy it is for companies to start doing business in all of those other countries. Will it be easier with this new economic partnership agreement? And what, you know, strategies can companies follow in order to make it easier for them to establish themselves in any of these other countries? And especially to deal with local laws and regulations in each territory. Okay, let me unpack that and take that through. First, first the background. The ease of doing business ranking done by the World Bank, I mean, indicates that, for example, Singapore uh, ranks number two, then Malaysia 12th, Thailand is 21st, and then Indonesia and Vietnam is 73rd and 70th, respectively. So it really does range. And the complexity of doing business in ASEAN, in some of these countries, less straightforward. So some of them are things like local language requirements. So even business documents of registering a company needs to be in the local language. And then mm. perhaps even notarized by an embassy overseas. So I think those requirements renders uh, things a bit more challenging when it comes to some of these countries. But I think there are good partners and good service providers already in place. We are, in ASEAN itself, is a region that's very open to uh, investments, which is why then a whole degree and range of service providers have set up in ASEAN itself. And these are international law firms or regional law firms, corporate service providers, professional service providers that's really set up. And I would think that these will be some of the places that you start with. But let me maybe take a step back and say that go by all means, I think go with associations and the chambers from where your country is from. So the US chambers, the US ASEAN chambers is very active, for example, in ASEAN itself. And I'm sure you can find from the chambers itself, someone who's in a similar industry, not the same industry, to share experiences and knowledge about how to go about setting up in different parts of ASEAN itself. So uh, let me go back then to the service providers. There's a whole range of them and who understands the local environment that has experience in helping companies set up in these countries. And that includes UOB. And the bank has been in Asia itself for uh, 80 years. And so from that perspective, we have a network as well as the culture and understanding of Asian principles in order to support companies expanding into ASEAN. And then last but not least, you talk about the agreement itself. The agreement states and stipulates most favored nation status of four countries investing. Uh, into ASEAN, into the RCEP countries itself. What this means is that if you render the opening up of an industry or a sector to a certain country, you, by the agreement itself, have to offer the same kinds of privileges to companies from other countries who are mm. in the agreement itself. So I think that then facilitates the most ideal environment, or at least that has been negotiated into investing in those countries, no matter where you're from. So I, I think that itself then step by step 
takes and opening up and the attractiveness of uh, investing into ASEAN, both as a manufacturing hub as well as a services economy. I think you've already mentioned something about this, but how has the pandemic and the standardization of remote work changed industries and businesses in the region? And also, how can it help businesses and people to look out for talent, to search for talent, not only in one specific country, but all over the region? Let me not talk about the travel hospitality industry. I think that's global and universal and just perhaps focus on a bit more localized, you know, developments. I, I think it has driven quite a lot of companies to almost like have the saying that you have to digitalize or perish. I, if you think about the SMEs who sell food in open areas, many of them has gone with food delivery mm -hmm. and e-commerce has really been on the rise. The food services industries uh, has been hit quite hard. And many of the countries actually depends on ad hoc services. I mean, small and medium-sized enterprises. So SMEs who have been unable to embark on these, I guess, digital efforts have really fallen behind and are struggling. And oftentimes, the regional governments therefore have to try and support them financially through this period itself. Last but not least, in terms of the challenges, I think FaceTime, the ability, I mean, Asia is such a culture where people like to meet face-to-face -face, and the lack of that ability to meet together to kind of sense where an investment destination is and where a business partner is kind of slow down the investment making process for investments, foreign direct investments into ASEAN itself. So I think these are some of the challenges that COVID-19 has actually rendered itself. But even as I think challenges are there, there are those who can do work remotely and this will be doing relatively well. And while there may be some concerns regarding social and mental well-being, given mm. no lack of interaction nowadays, but I think the whole uh, future of work will be something that I think uh, will change. We were just chatting with uh, colleagues and friends of mine just earlier about how we have to come to terms with saying that the workers of the current generation has been so used to remote working that we have to adjust our work styles mm -hmm. and work uh, formats. Leadership has to change in order to get a sense of how do you want to manage, I think, a diverse workforce where technology has really enabled much more remote working. And I think that's where perhaps companies, especially like, like globalization partners, who does that, offer that service to find the right talent and then offer companies the option to allow these employees, right, this talent to work wherever they are. Then that whole sense of opportunities where you can then tap on the talent without going through the necessary process of setting up there. And I think that flexibility allows companies to identify talent and even test markets before eventually growing them and deciding to set up a permanent presence there. I think those are some of the observations that we've seen in terms of the pandemic and how I think work has really changed uh, in the future. Finally, you've already mentioned this, but maybe you want to explain it in more detail. How can you and the United Overseas Bank help companies to do business in Southeast Asia? And how can they contact you and start a conversation with you? Thanks, Diego. So let me close off by saying three things. One is that I think we can be we are a business knowledge partner. Having 18 years of doing business in Asia, uh, we know Asia. And the nuances, the cultural considerations, some of the socioeconomic risks, even between tensions between or so-called, how easy is it to import and export or sell to different markets in Asia itself. It's a very cosmopolitan and culturally diverse region. So we tend to want to work closely with companies to help them understand that uh, nuances. The second part really is that work. And having operated in Asia for so long, mm. we decided that we realized that actually companies need to know who are business partners. And while you can work with business associations and chambers, we realized that companies oftentimes still struggle to find and locate where they might be. So as a bank, you'll be set up a dedicated foreign direct investment advisory uh, unit 
to actually work alongside companies. Put aside the banking discussions first, but talk about your business. How do you actually set up? Who might be a partner or associations or even suppliers or distributors that you may want to connect with? Start to build up that connections first, even mm-hmm. before you set up and then think about banking later on. And we know the local governments fairly well and being op- having operated there for, for quite a while. And so who are the right government authorities to actually approach to maybe exchange notes on or who might be service providers who know exactly what the governments are looking for in order to process your registration documents as well. I think those are connections, the network that we hope that UOB can render to its partners and clients of the future. And last but not least, of course, is financial services. I can't go away without without speaking about that. There are multiple currencies out in ASEAN, in Asia itself. We talk about the China renminbi, and then of course the Thai baht, the rupiah, the ringgit, sing dollars, uh, even the dong in Vietnam itself. And when it comes down to cross-border transactions, multi-currency flows, you know, treasury activities in ASEAN, in China, involving China itself. I think those that is where UOB has its strength. We are really an international bank, but with a very strong footprint in Asia. And if Asia is a market of growth, of, of interest to you, then I think let's have a conversation and see how we can support each other towards our huge interests. Thank you very much for this conversation. And Kit, it has been a pleasure. And thank you for opening up the world a bit more for us. Thank you, Diego. It's been a pleasure. And uh, thank you, Globalization Partners, for the invitation to be on the podcast. Thanks. Thank you, Ankit. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Remember that you can find all episodes on Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts and in our website. So if you are planning to hire a new global team member, Globalization Partners makes it easy to onboard international talent in a matter of days. Go to globalization-partners.com to get started. This is Going Global, presented by Globalization Partners.